from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend, coming to you from our South Bend studios. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Soybean prices surge as weather worries in Brazil heat up. We've lost a billion of 1.2 billion bushels of soybeans in Brazil. It's a record and nothing historically comes close. And that may be causing China's appetite for U.S. soybeans to grow. USDA announces a $1 billion investment for climate smart farming. We have the details on what it could mean for your farm. And ahead of Super Bowl Sunday, a Bengals coach with ties to the farm. And I still go back to this day and, uh, you know, help on that, certainly in the summertime when it comes time for wheat harvest. How this farm kid never lost his ties to the farm. Now for the news, as soybeans hit the $16 mark, the markets were focused on new supply and demand numbers from USDA, and specifically how much forecasters would cut the South American crop. Forecasters trimming Brazil's soybean harvest by 5 million metric tons and Argentina by a million and a half metric tons. Not as much as what the trade had hoped for. And for corn, Argentina was unchanged from January, where Brazil pegged at 1 million metric tons lower, all more than the trade predicted. Checking those ending stocks here at home, corn stocks are unchanged, soybeans down 25 to 325 million bushels, and wheat stocks are 20 million bushels higher, all higher than what the trade had anticipated. We'll have more on how the market reacted to the news coming up in our market report. Also helping to push the markets higher this week, China continuing to buy U.S. ag goods. USDA announcing the country buying another 240,000 metric tons of new crop soybeans on Wednesday. Now, it comes on the heels of the Beijing buying 380,000 metric tons of beans earlier this month. And as you can see, there have also been several sales to unknown destinations, which many analysts believe are also China. But according to one think tank, the phase one trade agreement with China is a failure. Chad Brown of the Peterson Institute for International Economics saying China bought none of the extra $200 billion worth of U.S. ag exports under what was termed a historic trade deal before December 31st of last year, saying, quote, the only undisputed historical aspect of that agreement is its failure, end quote. The Institute reporting China bought only 57 percent of the U.S. exports it had committed to purchase under the deal. And you can see here, the Institute says it met 83 percent of its ag commitments. Brown says several of the deal's elements should be left in place, including Beijing's commitments to remove technical barriers to U.S. farm exports, along with respecting intellectual property. Well, despite that assessment about the trade deal with China, USDA reports American ag posted its highest annual export levels ever recorded last year. It reports ag to the world totaled $177 billion. That topped the 2020 total by 18%. The top 10 export markets all seen gains last year. China remains the top export destination with a record $33 billion in buys, up 25% from 2020. Mexico coming in at number two, and Canada rounded out the top three. USDA is making a big push to promote what it calls climate smart agriculture by putting $1 billion towards several pilot projects. The agency announcing the creation of the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities program. The program would promote farming, ranching, and forestry practices that cut greenhouse gas emissions or capture and store carbon. The program will use funds from the Commodity Credit Corporation. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack 
He says the program will be inclusive for producers of all sizes and all types of production. Now, in practice, this might look, for example, like a group of small farmers working with a nonprofit to implement and quantify climate smart practices in partnership with a retailer. Or it could be a network of commodity organizations recruiting specialty crop farmers to quantify reduced emissions and market the resulting products. It may be a project, the uh, farmer partner organization working with universities to test innovative approaches to monitor and verify climate benefits to aid in marketing. It could be all of that or any of it. Applications for the grants are due by Friday, April 8th. Well, new federal requirements for a commercial driver's license are now in effect, and they could have a major impact on your farm operation. According to the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association, the new requirements mean an entry-level driver must successfully complete a program on theory and behind-the-wheel instruction. They must be provided by a school or other entity listed on a registry, and it must take place prior to taking the CDL test. For farmers, it could have a major impact for people hauling grain or livestock, also for picking up a piece of equipment that's more than 150 miles from your farm. The new rules come at a time when the trucking industry is already facing major driver shortages, and it could cost up to $8,500 and 21 days of training. We're talking, like I said, 40 to 60,000 drivers, and some have even estimated that it's 80,000. Um, and we have some of the issues that are facing the industry is it's not nearly as, you know, romantic to be a truck driver as it used to be, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, with uh, the regulation that truck drivers face day to day, it doesn't make it as a lucrative industry to get into anymore. Crepu says the changes will be costly, not only in terms of money, but time. She says farmers are exempt from CDL requirements as long as they stay within a 150 air mile radius of their farming operation. All right, that's it for the news. When we come back, when will the West see rain? We'll have a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasavik next. Meteorologist Matt Urasavik joins us now with weather. Matt, in South Bend, Indiana, this week it's clear the east has seen its fair share of winter moisture this year, but will the West have to keep waiting for that snow or rain? Well, Tyne, they may have to wait just a little bit longer, but again, looking at our root zone, we we have a lot of dry soil back there in the West and they are going to need some of that moisture as we head towards planting season, which is just a month or two away and we've got wetter conditions here across middle Tennessee down into the Gulf Coast states and even up towards into the really the Midwest and into the Great Lakes. We've got really that white showing near normal soil moisture for this uh, time of the year. But again, very dry back there to the West as that Western Ridge breaks down, though, could see some showers and some mountain snow showers as we head through this week, which will be some good news. It won't be a big dent in this drought map, but it could be some good news back here. Southern California into parts of the Four Corners region and even Nevada as well. And then the big storm system gets going as we head through the middle part of the week, and that could spread some much needed moisture across parts of Oklahoma, Kansas, even into the southern Rockies as well. New Mexico, Texas could get in on some of that. And then up here into the Great Lakes and the upper Midwest, down into the Gulf Coast and those abnormally dry spots along the East Coast as well. So we could get some help where we really need it. 
And this is really going to show you what we're dealing with this week as we see this jet stream really start to break down that western ridge, a big upper low coming into the south and west. And that is going to bring that chance for some showers and some mountain snow showers. And then that's going to come right up through the middle of the country, riding right along that jet stream. And as it does, we've got cold air to the north. We've got warm air to the south. That's going to bring some rain and even some thunderstorms across parts of the south and east. And then up to the north and west, well, we're going to have a swath of snow there, depending on where that sets up. Could be looking at a decent snowfall for some. But then heading into next week, through the weekend and into next week, look at this very zonal pattern. That means much more warm air is able to come into the country and then we've got a trough setting up back off the coast. Just a hint that we could be dealing with some more moisture as we head two weeks from now. So looking at Monday, February 14th, we've got some showers here with a low kind of spinning off the coast. High pressure everywhere else though down into the four corners. Stays mild back there, but where that cold front has come through over the weekend, chilly conditions sticking around as we head into Monday with an upper low bringing some light snow showers there to the northern Great Lakes. Mainly sunny though everywhere else with high pressure in control. Then on Wednesday, this is when our storm system really starts to get going. Warm air out ahead of this system and with high pressure in control. Here comes those rain showers breaking out, but there's that cold air right there. And as that cold air crashes into this system, we'll see that snow form on the northern side. And then we've got some snow showers and some rain showers out there in the west that could bring some much needed help. Here's a look though at really Friday where we're going to be dealing with that storm system exiting off the east coast. Chilly conditions in behind, but again, warmer back there as that pattern shifts to a more zonal flow. And we'll be seeing that as we head through the week and into next weekend. We'll have more coming up on that late next week. Thanks, Matt. Well, it's weather that's causing the explosive price action in soybeans this week. Dan Bossy and Joe Vaklovic explain why next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's February 22nd online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. This weekend for our marketing roundtables, we have Dan Bossy as well as Joe Vaklovic. Joe, talk about some explosive market action this week. What is the main driver, really, that the market's keeping a close eye on? I think the main driver in regard to soybean prices, at least, and the soybean market's been kind of the star of the show. The big driver are the drastic cuts to the South American production estimates, Brazil in particular. Brazil's government, uh, CONAB, uh, slashed their production estimate on Thursday morning, well below what USDA projected on Wednesday morning. So that led to a, a big rally, multi-year highs in the market, uh, really, really strong action. When you look at what was expected prior to the growing season versus what's being expected now in terms of South American soybean production, you're talking a difference of like a billion bushels when you combine Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay. Uruguay. So I think the question moving forward is, you know, how much of that export business, which is going to be lost undoubtedly, how much of it, if any of it, comes to the United States? Yeah, and we will ask that question in a minute. But Dan, you were just in South America. You have an office down there. How do your forecasts for the South American crop compare to what, what uh, we just saw the, the South America come out with? Well, we did a big crop tour in the end of January, time, and we came out with a crop of 125.9. And the industry kind of looked at it sideways at that point, thinking we were too low. But we were just seeing tremendous losses in Rio Grande de Sol, Santa Catarina, Paraná, and even Southern Mata Grossa de Sol. And then the North wasn't making up the difference to the South. So I have confidence in that 125 number 
uh, that CONAB put out this morning. CONAB was aggressive because the government there, of course, wanted to look at maybe some loans or compensation to farmers that were affected. So I'm thinking that, that that's a number we can live with. It may be a, a cut a little bit more, but I think the market's coming along to this thought of what Joe said, that we've lost a billion of 1.2 billion bushels of soybeans in Brazil. It's a record and nothing historically comes close to the amount of loss that's seen this year. Yeah, well, you know, we had a revision from USDA this week. We had a WASD report, not a big market mover. But, Joe, is USDA acknowledging those cuts in South America? They're acknowledging the cuts to some extent. But the one thing that USDA did not tell us, USDA left their export projection for soybeans out of the United States unchanged for the current marketing year. Uh, Brazil cut their export projection uh, for, for Brazil by 10 million metric tons. That's... Uh, what, 370 million bushels ballpark, pardon my math. But in any case, there's a lot of export demand that uh, is not going to be fulfilled by South America. Uh, does that demand disappear or does it come to the United States? I, I think that's a big question. But Dan, Dan, has that demand started? I mean, we've saw, you know, some, some daily sales reported from USDA. Then we got the weekly number. It seems like maybe China's coming to the U.S. due to concerns about South America. So is it starting? Is it actually happening, Dan? Well, actually, if we go back in history and start to look at the relationships of when Brazil or South America adds or subtracts uh, crop, it's almost a one-to-one -one relationship. It's 0.9 in beans. So we expect that demand to come to the United States, both in an old and a new crop position. What USDA hasn't shown us yet is that new crop balance sheet, which may show more of the increase. But, you know, there's no way that our balance sheets can accommodate a billion bushels of extra crush or exports. It just can't happen or we're going to need an ex exponential increase in soybean acres this year. So that's the theme and thesis. What price does the market have to get to to ration that kind of crop loss? Our modeling would say it's something near the old time highs, which is 1795 a bushel. But I can't even rule out higher highs than that should, of course, for losses be more or, of course, the Chinese keep coming. Okay, so, Joe, if we do see Dan's forecast and Conab's forecast come true, we do see China come to the U.S. for some of that soybean demand. How tight could balance sheets get here? Oh, they could get phenomenally tight. If China decided that they're really interested in buying 16 and $17 old crop soybeans out of the United States, you could ultimately end up in a rationing scenario where, you know, your carryout levels fall from, I think, 320 being projected down to you could be under 200. You could you could be phenomenally low. Uh, but that's one of the big questions that I have. Is China interested in 16 or 17 dollar old crop U.S. beans when new crop futures are, are still south of 15? I think you're going to see a lot of additional new crop business. But how much old crop business uh, can be shifted to the U.S.? Uh, USDA told us nothing yesterday or, or on, on Wednesday, rather, in their report. They, they said no additional U.S. export business. I find that hard to believe. All right. Well, Dan, we want your thoughts on that. We have to take a break, but we want your thoughts on that as well as just this acreage debate. I mean, are we going to see corn really have uh, to be aggressive with pricing to buy some acres this year? So we need to take a break, but we'll talk about that later on U.S. Farm Report. Welcome back. Well, John Phipps joins us this weekend from the farm for John's World. When I graduated from a small engineering school in 1970, a friend of mine missed graduating with a perfect 4.0 in two degrees, electrical engineering and math, because of one A minus in ROTC, of all things. 
yeah, two years of ROTC were required for all students. I think it would have been the first perfect GPA in the school's history. In the 52 years since, that achievement has become common there. My point is not kids have it too soft these days, but that grade creep, as it is called, has made grades almost irrelevant, not just in academics either. Everybody wants a grade these days. My doctor sends a follow-up survey. So does my dentist. Any website, even government ones like the Federal Reserve, wants me to fill out a brief survey after looking up GDP data or whatever. Restaurants put cards on the table. It reminds me of former New York City Mayor Ed Koch, who would stand on the streets asking passers-by, how am I doing? When this practice became common, indeed unavoidable, I would often carefully score the questions from 1 to 10 on many of those surveys. Not anymore. I've learned two things. First, those surveys are often to extract more data about me than my transaction with them. And second, surveys may be a prime example of grade creep. Ask anyone in a service industry about feedback forms. Not only are they pressured to get customers to fill them out, but anything less than a perfect score has negative consequences for the representative you are grading. Results directly affect their compensation and career. Those consequences may be less drastic now that service workers are scarce, but why would I want to make what already looks like a difficult job dealing with a difficult public any harder? Because my order was wrong or a part was missing. People make mistakes, and everybody deserves a little more slack than we've been giving them lately. Meanwhile, websites already know more about me than my friends do, although that kind of data harvesting may be facing more resistance soon. It's also debatable how useful the data from such surveys are, because I suspect there are more people like me who either opt out altogether or, if pressured, score all tens. Our numbers may be growing as this exercise has been done to death. So on a scale from 1 to 10, I rate my satisfaction with incessant satisfaction surveys a perfect zero. Thanks, John. All right, let's take a quick break, and the Machine Repeat joins us this weekend for Tractor Tales. Your next piece of equipment is on MachineRepeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineRepeat.com. Hey there folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're going to North Central Illinois to learn about a 1929 John Deere D on full steel. This is a 1929 D John Deere on full steel. I bought it probably 20 years ago. I found it along the Rock River and it was underwater a lot. So the motor was totally junk, broke. You couldn't see only just the top of the radiator cap. So it was underwater a lot. And I decided to stop and ask the guy if he wanted to sell it. And he did, so we brought her home. So we totally disassembled it, put everything in it new, new motor, new head, new block, rebuilt everything that needed it. And we totally restored it probably 15 years ago. They're the biggest of the two cylinders, cubic inch wise. They're six and three quarters by seven inches of stroke. 
I just, I like them because they're heavy and there's a lot of tractor out in front of you. That's what I like. Yeah, it don't steer the easiest with the, with the guide bands in the ground. It steers a little, little tough. You have to get used to it to return it back to its to a different direction takes a little bit. Well, they, I think some of that know the John Deere's like the D's that like them. And if you don't like them, you don't like them. But they're, they're a monster trying to turn them over sometimes to get them started. They're pretty heavy to get rolling. It took us about six months uh, to at time we disassembled everything, got it running, make sure everything was right, and you know took off the stuff that needed to, for the painting process. Yeah, we paint everything ourselves, fix them ourselves. Probably be here as long as I'm alive. Up next, a young farm couple blazing their own trail, and while they're all in on beef, the operation is diversified in every way. We head to the Shenandoah Valley to meet the Martins next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. It's a love story that happens states apart. But now it's a husband and wife duo blazing the trail, opening up doors of opportunity with a business that continues to get beefed up. And it's that couple who's the recipient of the 2022 Top Producers Horizon Award. Nestled in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia is where you'll find the Martins doing what they love. We run a cow-calf operation, got a couple hundred mama cows. Brendan purchased his first few cows in high school, but it wasn't until after vet school that this hobby got serious. Today, Martin Angus is growing thanks to the hard work of him and his business partner, his wife Elaine. I'm probably the main person who checks heat when we're breeding cows and have breeding projects, which we do a lot. The operation is focused on Angus cattle, but it's diversified in every sense, touching nearly every part of the value chain from farm to finish. We take the calves, retain ownership, put them in the feeding barn. Um, once we get them up to 900 pounds, some of them will retain ownership on and send to feed. Some of them we sell as load lots that go to places such as Canada or a few other places that are looking for some heavyweight steers to finish. The Martins searching for ways to add even more value here in the valley. We'll set up the cow, we'll breed them, and then they'll come and help us flush them. And then we can return the embryos to the folks that sent the cow uh, to help their embryo transfer process. This duo is also beefing up their breeding program by focusing on genetics. We'll try to transfer two to 300 embryos a year, and that way it furthers our advancement with genetics. Work that's paying them back in a big way. Once the cattle go to finish, the carcass premiums end up being additional to what you make on the calf. So you can make another $130 a head on the carcass just based off of the genetic merit from that calf. Some of that genetic value, they market themselves, selling beef direct to consumers under the label Blue Cedar Beef. Kind of got the idea of um, you can go to the grocery store and get one steak, why can't I put one steak or two roasts in a box and send it to people? So um, I took a course online um, of some people who do a direct consumer meat business and so that's, that's where I really learned the ins and outs of how to get frozen product in a presentable fashion to a customer's doorstep. Blue Cedar Beef started back in 2019, and as the orders come in, it's another way for the Martins to diversify their business and their time. Don't forget, Brendan 
is still a full-time veterinarian. It's given me an opportunity to probably be a better veterinarian having cattle at home, being able to learn from them and then be able to help others. But it's also uh, helpful going to other folks' operation, learning from them, seeing what they've done, how they've changed things on their farm, built infrastructure, and being able to use that here. Brendan's practice is just him and one other vet which means Elaine is the constant in what at times can feel like chaos. I like um, taking the reindeer out and going slow and just checking everybody. Um, I know Brendan can be in a hurry sometimes because he's got so much going that he doesn't have the time to just kind of go slow and check everybody. But Brendan will tell you it's her attention to detail and keen ability to focus on cattle health that makes it all work. She's pretty eager to get after it and get something done. She don't like making mistakes, and so you can count on her to do well. She's good, she can see a sick calf, she can go treat the calf. She can pretty well do everything. The Martins own 283 acres and rent additional pasture, focusing on rotational grazing. It's given us the opportunity to divide groups up, keep the first calf heifers separate from the cows so they can uh, grow within their age group. That's helped out as far as getting them bred and, and the cows raising a calf. That's also helped with calf loss. Ponds and creeks are now fenced, improving water quality and reducing runoff into the Chesapeake Bay. By fencing the streams and the creeks off, that's helped that cattle aren't standing in the running water. Having a bed pack barn where our manure and stuff is, we're able to pile it up under roof and then be able to take it out and spread it. Uh, that's been helpful. Now over the years, the Martins have seen their business grow from a hobby to income with a steady stream. Having a vet practice as well has helped have consistent cash flow coming in to be able to help pay bills for fertilizer and, and spray for the crops and a few things that don't come at the same time when you get a cattle check. So it sure has helped. They credit lessons learned from some of the best ranchers and cattle producers in the country for some of that success. There's a whole subset of friends in Southwest Kansas there at Garden Rangus Ranch and their local veterinarian, Dr. Spare. It's actually where I met my wife. So it's been a pretty special spot. Helping them to navigate a way forward. We work with Garden Rangus Ranch, helping us market some bulls out in Ashland, Kansas, as well as we sell some locally for private treaty. Ultimately, the goal is to have their own genetics sale. To reach that future, the work on this ranch never stops. Proof that passion and perseverance can be a powerful tool. Congratulations to the Martins on being named the 2022 Top Producer Horizon Award winner. Now the Martins, along with three top producer of the year finalists and the Trailblazer Award winner, will be all honored Monday night during the 2022 Top Producer Summit in Nashville. There's still time to register for the in-person event, and there will also be a virtual, virtual portion of that event that happens February 22nd through the 23rd. To find out more or to register, just use the QR code on your screen. All right, when we come back, will corn prices need to compete for soybean acres before spring? Our marketing roundtables kick back off next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Pre-order by February 28th with coupon code USFR for free shipping. All right, Dan, something that Joe hit on in our last half hour of the show, the question mark is, do we think that China will come to the U.S. for old crop soybeans, continue, you know, considering the prices that we're seeing? Do you think they have to come to the U.S., Dan? 
Well, they have been coming to the U.S. I mean, it's not a question of if they have been coming. They're buying beans again today, I'm told by my export friends. So I see that continuing. Uh, you know, the question is the degree. I mean, Brazil will have soybeans probably till the middle or beginning of August and thereafter they just run out. Last year, the, with the, uh, the Brazilians exported about 9 million extra tons from that September through January timeframe. We'll pick up that business. So what we've done at Ag Resources, I've increased my old crop export estimate by about 125 million bushels. On new crop though, I think we're gonna have record exports over 2.3 billion. In both cases, it takes our end stock totals down to pipeline or below. Can't have less in pipeline, but that's the job of the market to ration in terms of price. All right, Joe, all of this leading into the acreage debate. We know it's complicated this year with input availability, uh, crop insurance, weather question marks. But at this point, when you look at prices today, does corn need to get aggressive to buy acres this year? If this was a normal year and you're an academic sitting at a university uh, somewhere in the Corn Belt, you'd look at the corn-soybean ratio and you'd say, hey, this favors more soybean acres. And uh, this is not a normal year. You've got input uh, issues in regard to fertilizer in particular, which may limit corn acreage. So corn acres are a, a massive question mark here. Uh, you can certainly make the argument that corn's going to lose two, three million acres at this point in time, given the way the price ratios are set up, given the way that soybeans are rallied. Uh, the, the question, I guess, do farmers want to change rotation? Are they interested in changing rotation? Uh, the money is is certainly there in soybeans now, and, and that situation's changed drastically. There was a period in time where the corn market was trying to buy acres, and now it's gone back the other way. I don't have a clue what the acres are going to be. There are people who think we'll plant 90 million acres of corn. There are people who think we'll plant 96 million acres of corn. I don't think either one of them are crazy. I have no idea, but it's, it's going to be one of the most interesting acreage battles I've ever seen. We really do have a wide range of estimates right now when it comes for acres. But Dan, in your opinion, how many acres do we need to see? And if we don't get there, what impact could that have on the market? Well, my, our big need is in soybeans. I absolutely need to have at least 90 million acres of soybeans. I need record soybean acreage or I end up with negative end stocks next year. So that's, that's, that's an almost must. Where they come from is going to be the big question. Does it come from corn? Does it come from cotton? Does it come from spring wheat? That'll be figured out a little bit by Mother Nature this spring. But I would also highlight back to everything else that the corn market, if we have any losses with that Safrina Brazilian crop or even the Argentinian corn crop, it just puts the corn need at same at a same level of soybeans. So there's a lot of moving parts yet as we head into spring planting. This is all about getting as many acres as possible of all crops. And so that's really the, uh, the demand of the market looking forward. Joe, is it typical that we see this type of price action this time of year? Uh, February is typically not a terrible month. I did a study um, over the last 10 years of price action during February. We were doing it in related to uh, uh, the crop insurance discovery period. And it's kind of 50-50. I mean, February can be good. February can be bad. I think in soybeans over the last 10 years, it's been good. Six out of 10 years, we've uh, finished February higher. So it's it's a mixed bag. Seasonally speaking, you know, the markets will typically hold together uh, through the spring and, and through when we know, you know, we get a better feel for acreage, we start to look at weather. And then it's around that, you know, May, June timeframe more recently that your seasonal peaks are posted. I don't know if this is a normal year and I don't know if the seasonals matter in a year like this though. Yeah, what what is normal? All right, you know, Dan, though, you look at, you know, this kind of this weather market right now, we have concerns about South America. Is there a chance that this year the weather market is with South America and not with the U.S.? I mean, could we put our highs in early possibly? 
you know, Ty, my big concern is with South America and the U.S. That's my big concern because we've got all this insipid dryness across the plains in Western Corn Belt. And my weather people are already screaming about uh, dryness as we head into April, May. So I don't know. It's it's a long ways down the tracks. Let's see how it all goes. But this is a bull market that I haven't seen for a long time in my career. I've done this for 42 years. So as I look backwards, this is one of the biggest that I have seen. I don't think it plays out to Joe's point until we get into the spring, get seed in the ground and really understand what the U.S. weather pattern will be. We cannot afford to lose another bushel or another metric ton. Joe, what do you feel like is the biggest risk right now for both corn and soybeans? Uh, my honest opinion is that the biggest risk is in the outside markets, um, something with the Fed, interest rates, a collapse in the stock market, something along those lines. Fundamentally, we're on pretty solid footing here, I think. I don't know that there's anything fundamentally in the grain markets in regard to supply and demand that would change drastically. Maybe something on the trade front with China. We heard some talk about tariffs this week. I'm not, I wouldn't bet on that. Uh, my biggest concern, honestly, would come from the outside. I, I think fundamentally here, we're on, again, I, I think we're on fairly solid footing in the row crop markets. Well, bottom line, it sounds like buckle up because this volatility could continue. Dan and Joe, thank you so much for providing some clarity this weekend. We appreciate it. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, a piggy bank can be a symbol of prosperity, wealth, even luck. But how the idea of a piggy bank even came to life is one where you have to travel to White Cloud, Kansas to discover. And that's where Andrew McRae takes us this weekend for American Countryside. In the early 1900s, the Chapman family was living in the small town of White Cloud, Kansas, along the banks of the Missouri River. The Chapmans were missionaries, but were back home when a visitor came to town with an important message about helping those in need. Mr. Danner, who was the first uh, secretary of the American Leprosy Association, came for a visit and he came to the church and explained to the people about the leprosy in Haiti and the countries that are across the sea in the third world. As Linda Maris explains, Mr. Danner told those gathered it cost $25 per year to support a child's needs who had leprosy. Chapman family was inspired to help, and Mrs. Chapman set the goal to donate $250, quite a sum in 1910, to help 10 children. Before Mr. Danner left town, he handed 10-year-old Wilbur Chapman three silver dollars as a thank you for hosting it. And so Wilbur thought, well, what could he buy with it? And then he told his parents he wanted to buy a pig and raise it, and then sell it and send the money to Mr. Danner. Wilbur bought a piglet, named him Pete, and began feeding him to raise money to help children with leprosy. Meanwhile, his mother's fundraising was going well, but she was still short of her goal. And then after he became a hog, he was sold. And uh, Wilbur uh, donated the $25 to finish up his mother's promise of $250. Wilbur Chapman wrote a letter to Mr. Danner, along with the $25 from the sale of his pig. Mr. Danner was moved by what the boy had done and shared word of it through a Sunday school pamphlet the Leprosy Association sent to churches. The American Leprosy decided that they would make piggy banks, little pigs like Pete the Pig, and send them to Sunday school so the children could put money in it to collect to send back to the American Leprosy Association. And that event is said to be the birth of the piggy bank we know today. The pig was also immortalized in a classic children's book. E.B. White, author of Charlotte's Web, named the pig in his book Wilbur in honor of Wilbur Chapman, the boy who had sold his pig to help other children. This small town honors that boy and pig in several ways, including a marker that is now many decades old. 
This monument was built in 1938, and Mr. Chapman came back in 1938 when this was dedicated to him. From the time we're kids, we're told we need to save money and help those in need. But now you know the story of the piggy bank, all originated with a Kansas farm boy named Wilbur, who wanted to help those with leprosy around the world. Traveling the countryside in White Cloud, Kansas, I'm Andrew McCray. Thanks, Andrew. All right, when we come back, John Phipps has his take on leases. short-term versus long-term leases. John Phipps gives his thoughts and customer support this weekend. From longtime viewer Don Worth in Tangent, Oregon, I have said that part of the problem in the Midwest is the short-term leases. We have property here that our family has leased for close to 60 years with no fear of losing it. This allows it to be treated just like we owned it. Don, I almost didn't read this letter because I kept thinking, this is not something you should say out loud. It strikes me as tempting fate. There's also the fact that tenant farmers all over the world struggle to solidify their hold on rented acres. When I was in England a few years ago, the Tenant Farmer Association had a top priority to make tenancy a minimum of 10 years. We too have some ground that my family has rented for about 70 years or so, but such long-term leases are mostly a string of shorter-term leases, namely the lifetime of the heir. That actually highlights the underlying problem with rental security. It depends less on the tenant's performance and even profitability, and way more on the owner's health, family structure, and financial needs, any of which can change overnight. More than one farmer career has been shattered by an untimely landowner death, divorce, or unexpected financial needs, such as a job loss. Looking at enduring land tenure also suffers from survival bias. You only see the ones that fortune or lack of misfortune favor. Remember, virtually every successful renter means there were many more unsuccessful renter wannabes. Farm media generate pages and hours of content on how to achieve this kind of security. But the luck of kinship, location, and history still play an overwhelming role and cannot be calculated or taught. More farmland each year is leased for cash payments, not simply because owners are greedy, but because it makes the decision much less difficult for them in many ways, and often coincidentally more lucrative. The complexity of farm programs, volatility in market prices, and bold competition also fuel this shift away from shared risk traditional arrangements. I agree with you, Don, but after 50 plus years of trying, I wasn't able to pry the right to select the farmer away from the landowner. What I find amusing is how quickly the attitudes about rental terms change when an owner-operator becomes just an owner. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, it's a surreal experience this Super Bowl Sunday for one Kansas farm kid. We have this story next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. Well, for one NFL coach this weekend, his dream 
is coming true. He's coaching in the Super Bowl, and as a Kansas farm kid turned assistant head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, it really is a surreal Super Bowl experience this weekend. The football field is where Darren Simmons feels at home. Well, this is my 24th year in the NFL, so this is, this is my uh, first time certainly being to this point. But it's the farm field where Simmons has deep roots. I grew up on a family farm in, in uh, Elkhart, Kansas, in the very southwest corner of the state. And it's those same fields where Simmons goes to escape the grind of the NFL still today. You know, we get done with all of our offseason work uh, around the second week of June. And uh, the day we get done, I hop on a flight, fly right into Amarillo, Texas. The next day, I'm on the combine. It's a great release for me, you know, to get rid of the rigors of football. Simmons is a special teams coordinator and assistant football coach for the Cincinnati Bengals, even drafting the Bengals kicker, who's become a hero this season. Well, it's been something I've been very proud of. You know, it uh, we took a chance by drafting him, um, uh, you know, in the fifth round we did. Um, and he's been, you know, everything that we thought he would be and then some of course and I for talent the spotlight is on a team who hasn't been to the big show since 1988. Um, it's it just been very surreal to think you know way back in the day where I came from and, and where we, we are now savoring the moment this weekend is bittersweet after his dad passed away just six months ago his dad was a farmer for 50 years and he says he can feel his dad's presence this week as even his mom and family are in LA cheering him on. I know where my roots are, I know where home is for me, and, and that's a still a, a super important part of my life. A farm family turned football phenomenon with his roots still firmly planted in Southwest Kansas soils. Well, I have a feeling it will be more than just Elkhart, Kansas cheering him on this weekend. Well, that does it for US Farm Report. Thank you for watching. Be sure to join us next week as we hit the road to the National Farm Machinery Show and work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.